Welcome to The Bridge, fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Welcome to The Bridge. We are a show that connects East and West. My name is Jason. I'm from sunny California. Now we're here in beautiful Beijing. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Today's guest, Christy Newbold, is the academic director of different sets of kindergartens across China. She's regularly featured in Jing Kids, a magazine here in Beijing, where they've said, quote, her education and experience have enabled her to implement a well-rounded curriculum to support intellectual, social, and personal skills. Her teaching skills and profile, which include a PGCE and master's in early childhood education, have also been highlighted in the public China Daily. In addition to being an educator, Christy is a dancer and dance enthusiast here in Beijing. Welcome to the program, Christy. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for uh, inviting me on. Oh, well, we're really happy to have you. Actually, I know you. So we do. We've known really... each other for three years. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Yeah. We're about that. Uh, so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about where you're from in England. Ah, uh, Leicestershire, which is the Midlands. Um, what is that area known for? What are exports or you know what cultural things that people might be familiar with? Leicester, Leicester City is very famous for its cheese. Oh yeah, and we're very I close. Know to British people made their own cheese. We do lots of different cheeses actually. I'm gonna yeah. say something that might sound offensive. I thought you imported it from France, like oh, everyone else. I mean, we do, we definitely do import <laughs> a lot of cheese. I'm a huge cheese fan, mm, mm. Uh, but definitely Leicester itself has red Leicester. Mm. Is, it's red. Uh, orange. So is it is it dyed? It's like white, like all cheese, right? I don't know much about cheese. I don't know anything about cheese. <laughs> <laughs> but it's definitely, that's Leicester City mm. itself is known for its cheese and its football club. Oh, um, are you a big fan of football? No. But you are, I thought everyone from there was. There's another cliche. <laughs> I'm sure I'm dividing the nation. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, no, not, not me particularly, but Leicester, Leicester City Football Club's quite a famous football club. Uh, but I'm from the, the kind of country countryside, so I'm Leicestershire. Mm. Well, that's really interesting. Well, you studied and pursued education, but also dance. So uh, when I first met you, I remember you telling us how into dance you were years ago. And you have a balance between interest in educating the youth and dance. Could you tell us how you came to that balance? So I, I originally, I did my undergraduate degree in dance and it was all I ever wanted to do. I mm. wanted to either work in a theater company or choreograph or dance, wow. you know, professionally. And so I did my undergraduate degree. Um, I did the, I wanted to do the master's degree program in, I think it was arts management or theater mm. management. And I was about, I want to say a month away from starting the master's degree program and I get a phone call from the university and say the master's degree has been cancelled wow and I was like okay <laughs> and so at that point I'm a graduate with you know no job mm. no master's degree to go to mm. and so I went to the university and I spoke to the I guess it's like the equivalent of like a guidance counselor yeah, yeah, yeah. and they said in very kind of stereotypical education fashion they were like have you thought about teaching <laughs> i'm confused so in in the uk if you want to get into a different master's degree you don't have to wait a whole year to apply no i, I mean i was alumni of the university so i think that maybe helped oh. and so when i went to see the equivalent of a guidance counselor they said have you thought about teaching do you want to do the master's degree in education and i was, I was a little bit like not really like, 
kind of wanted to do the arts wow, management. This is totally new to me. That's yeah. not how I en envisioned it in my head. Yeah. So um, I spoke to the people on the education master's degree program, and I had done a little bit of work in education. Mm -hmm. I'd done some youth work. Part of my undergraduate degree, we went into mm -hmm. kind of different school programs, and we did physical education and dance. And so I got a little bit of education experience. Mm -hmm. I'd done some kind of after school programs and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, yeah, just do the master's degree in education. Wow. But it was literally, it was a month before the program was due to start. Yeah. And so I was like, okay. <laughs> and was, so, this is the equivalent length program? Yeah, still a year. But the key part was that I had to be employed full time in a school. Oh, wow. Because it was a- During the master's. During the master's degree. Oh, so right, to like get edu- yeah. Yeah, so I had to be employed Monday to Friday. And it, I think it was three times a week, like five till eight in the evenings going to the university. Mm. So the university said to me, you need a, a cover supervisor job, which mm. is basically a very poorly paid substitute teacher. Okay, yeah. Um, and so I went down to my local middle school, mm. the one that I went to. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. So you were teaching and your <laughs> former teachers were like, hey, Christy. There was there was, <laughs> there, there was two or three teachers there that, mm. that were my teachers originally. Yeah. Um, so I got the full-time position as a substitute teacher or, or a cover supervisor. So kind of like an unqualified teacher. Mm -hmm. And I adored it. It was such a wonderful job. I would go into the to the office in the morning. I would have a schedule on the desk mm. and it would tell me which classes I had to go to. And it was such a, it's such a brilliant opportunity to teach a multitude of subjects. Mm. I really have to think on your feet to... Yeah. You what, know, age, what ages were that? That was middle school. So that was 11 to 14. Mm. So different levels. You had different grades that yeah. you were actually teaching. Yeah. So age 11 to age 14, which is equivalent of year seven to nine in, in British education. Were you teaching one subject? No, multiple subjects. Multiple subjects yeah. from multiple levels. Yeah. That so sounds could, like a lot to take on all at once. So, and having no formal education yeah. experience before that, which is essentially what a cover supervisor is. You're just mm. supervising the class, essentially. Okay. Um, and so you go into the to the classroom and it might be the 11-year-olds for history mm -hmm, for 55 mm -hmm. minutes. And then you would be going into a group of 14-year-olds for math. Mm. The next lesson, there would be, you know, a very ropey lesson plan on the desk and a textbook and you would just... <laughs> make it work but i think yeah. it what you know it definitely helped me in my hmm. in my ability to teach well i think being able to kind of think on your feet with that kind of very loose mm -hmm. lesson plan and so i was working at the middle school whilst doing my master's degree in education mm. and i fell in love with education mm. the master's degree was absolutely brilliant we did a lot with um even like things like prison education and like youth offenders I'm sorry what's and, prison education <laughs> sounds as, really interesting yeah what as in <laughs> as in like you know making sure that people that leave prison have some qualifications oh, and have I life see. skills and be so this able is to... how to your too many let me slow down this is the masters or the masters degree, so yeah. they're teaching you how to go into a prison as a teacher and give skills to people so that they can be rehabilitated and re-enter society exactly, successfully yeah. wow not necessarily the, the practical skills to teach it but mm. it was definitely part of the master's degree you kind of look at all aspects of education and how education can kind of reach lots of different groups of people I have from so many early questions education now. to so these gentlemen are ladies in prison were you teaching them the same kinds of skills that like young students learn like math skills or were they learning like how to do their taxes and balance a checkbook is it different all of that yeah all of it. from the basics of i mean personally me i've never been into a prison to do the education this mm -hmm. was all theoretical yeah, learning. Yeah, yeah. um but i would like to eventually actually it was something, yeah. it's something that i'm really interested in doing kind of rehabilitation learning eventually 
um, a whole range of skills, right yeah. from getting their basic qualifications if they're younger funders, mm. all the way up to taxes and how to change a light bulb and, you know, mm. to, like get their kind of life skills of cooking and things like that. So when they go back into society, they can mm. function better. Well, you also have a PGCE. Is that like in the same program as your master's degree or was that a separate degree? That was a separate thing. So after Certificate? I'd, Is that was the right word? That's the, the teaching qualification yeah. in England. So after I'd finished my mm-hmm. master's degree, I was 100% sure that education was what I wanted to do. What happened to dance? So I just put that to the side uh. and decided, <laughs> yes, I want to teach. I really want to teach. Mm. It sounds great. So I did the PGCE and then hated education and did a complete 360. Wow. And I think the... The PGCE, it wasn't what I expected mm-hmm. it to be. I think doing the master's degree in education first was so enlightening that education can be so magical and mm. it can touch lots of different lives mm. and lots of different areas, which of course it should. You know, mm-hmm. education should be able to reach that many people. Mm-hmm. But then when you do the PGCE and mm-hmm. you learn how to teach the, you know, essentially like the state standards or mm-hmm. the core curriculum, it's very restrictive. Mm. And it's kind of a very one track program that you have to teach in this specific way by these guidelines mm. and any deviation of that is really not, is not allowed. Is it in the United States where the problem is teaching to the test kind of issue? Exactly, yeah, exactly. And it was, it just, it was kind of disheartening to me mm. that I'd done the master's degree and expected it to be kind of rainbows and unicorns of education. <laughs> and then it really wasn't. So after I'd done my, my teaching qualification, yeah. I was like, I don't want to teach anymore. So, well, I mean, we're here like a decade later, Mm. more. So how did you come back around to education so that you're still an educator after all this time? So after I'd kind of decided in England that I needed to kind of step away from education and figure out or or school education, kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, teaching in a state school, I looked for jobs overseas Mm. and I figured I'll take a year abroad. I'll find myself. Right, yeah. This, this is a <laughs> you know, story we hear all the time. All the time, the right? year in China. The year in China. Did you have another country 10. in mind? Were you considering... I applied all over the place, actually. Oh, yeah? yeah, loads of different places. In loads of different mm. kind of areas, not only kind of school education, but being an au pair or mm-hmm. living tutor. Mm-hmm. And, oh, wow. You know, all Some sorts really of... rich mansion where you just hang out in the like guest house in the back. And exactly. Yeah. That sounds lovely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there was one job actually that I uh, I saw that was educating two children on a yacht that was traveling wow. around the world. Like, <laughs> and I just figured, you know, I'll, I'll do something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. I'll take a step out of England. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, I'd done my undergraduate degree directly into my master's degree mm. directly into my teaching qualification and I think I just needed a, a step to the side and yeah, just figure yeah. out what realm of education I wanted to to, to kind of really be in mm-hmm. and so the traditional story of one year in China did you come straight to Beijing yeah so what did you know about China before you came to China I mean initially not a lot you know when I was applying for jobs I wasn't really concerned with the country mm. so much as I was about the just finding something different or mm. finding a job that I thought would you know suit me and so the country wasn't initially important you know I'd never had a mm-hmm. a particular interest in China or a pull towards Asia or any any particular place really mm-hmm. um and then I found a job in China and I was like, oh, this so you came for the job, came for the job. Mm. As I kind of started narrowing down my job choices, I definitely started doing my research mm-hmm. and figuring out, you know, which place in China I wanted to be. Or so what, what led you to choose Beijing over, I don't know, Shanghai, maybe just because it was the capital. Mm. And I think what I'd what I'd read online was that, you know, as somebody that hasn't been to China before, the capital would be a good place to start, mm. more built up. And obviously, you've, you've been in China as long as I have. China's, Beijing isn't the same place it was 11 years ago. Yeah, you know, we sure. didn't have WeChat, we didn't have yeah. you know, DD, we were still 
doing this. The first time I heard of WeChat, this guy was saying, oh, everyone's going to be using WeChat in, in the in the future, Jason. You need to download this. Like, ah, it's okay. A couple years later, it's like, life cannot happen without, without WeChat, WeChat anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were still carrying around paper money and that yeah, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think I chose Beijing because it seemed like the, obviously it was always going to be a hard transition mm-hmm. moving to to a, to a different country, but I, f- I felt like it was going to be an easier mm-hmm. transition than moving to a, you know, a third tier city maybe, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. I was going to be the only yeah. expat. Yeah, I hear a lot of stories about people who do that and then they're desperate to get into a larger city. Yeah, Yeah. because they've spent really long time kind of isolated away. You're listening to The Bridge. Before you moved to China, had you traveled? I mean, and I know a lot of people from the UK end up in Spain and mm. things like that. Have you traveled around Europe or other countries? Yeah, definitely. You know, I've been to a lot of places in, in Europe and actually did a semester overseas in the States during my undergraduate yeah. degree. Where, 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 where in the States? Maryland, Baltimore. Oh, okay. I've never yeah. been, but I hear mm. it's very lovely. It was. It was It was a great experience, actually. It was mm. really good. So can you tell us, I personally, me, I like the culture shock stories. So your first week or month in Beijing, how was that? What kind of things surprised you or did you you find that were not surprising i guess the the volume of people you mm-hmm. know i've definitely been to big cities yeah. before i've been to london i've been to new york mm-hmm. i've been to paris mm-hmm. and they're all you know very high traffic people yeah. and populated cities but nothing can prepare you for <laughs> for you know the equivalent of line one mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. seven o'clock in the morning Guamau. yeah guamau station yeah. at seven <laughs> o'clock in the morning nothing can prepare you for that you mm-hmm. could do all of your research <laughs> but until you've experienced it full hand mm-hmm. And the obviously crossing roads and things like that. Mm. You know, England's very set rules on yeah, yeah. jaywalking, jaywalking, Ticket. ticketing, yeah. and that kind of thing. And the kind of look both ways and then hope and then run across the road. You know? <laughs> Nothing can really set you up for that. And that now, was the- my own experience is it's changed a little bit. Like, oh, for sure. Especially now. Bit, you know, in Wuhan, it hasn't changed. I was there last year and mm. it's a lot like Beijing was 10, 10 years, years ago. ago. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's a beautiful city, lovely town, beautiful air quality, all that stuff. Yeah. Is, the cars are like, no, I'm going. Yeah. And like in Beijing now, it seems like the cars are more like okay go ahead pedestrians yeah. so there's do, been some change i do feel like wuhan's changing at the same pace beijing did though like mm. every time i visit wuhan it's something's <laughs> different something's changing but definitely better now than it was oh, that's right you have so you, okay before we get to where all of the kindergartens that you manage are te- could you tell us a little bit about what was like the school that you came like at that time mm. and ha- maybe how did you help that school evolve yeah so i think you know 10 11 years ago education in beijing was a, a, a vastly different place mm-hmm. um when i when i first arrived at muffy's international kindergarten yeah. mik mik mm-hmm. um when i when i first arrived i was in a a location that was essentially in a, a kind of office building almost mm. four stories the kindergarten was on the fourth floor we had a playground on the roof wow. <laughs> <laughs> it was basically just one long corridor and the classrooms were kind of either side oh, yeah. I had a, a classroom that was, you know, a third of the size of the room that we're in now. Mm. And, you know, we had somewhat of a, a structure and somewhat of a schedule, mm-hmm. but it definitely, you know, I think a lot of kindergartens back then, a lot of education, they were kind of opening, but they didn't all have a, a good direction. Mm. They didn't all have a, a good kind of system in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was fortunate enough that I'd come from England with my kind of master's degree and yeah. my teaching experience, wanting to implement something that I felt really passionate about uh. and 
wanting to implement something that that I felt like was making significant change. I wanted that feeling that I had in my master's degree. Yeah. Unfortunately, enough, found muffies that needed a little bit of that direction, yeah. and they were, you know, trusting enough to put their confidence in me to allow me to make those changes. So you created the curriculum that exists now. I mean, definitely not from scratch. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a lot of good stuff in place already, mm-hmm. but I definitely helped along the way. I think to to kind of build it into what we are now to make it scalable. So you were able to take open more locations. Your dream of how education should be exactly and mix that with the pragmatic approach that you'd learned in your PGCE yeah. and create a curriculum that was a balance of what you felt kids really needed. Yes. Absolutely. That, that's a, that's really admirable and actually quite an amazing story. So now you are the director, academic director mm-hmm. for many different groups of kindergartens. So for Muffies itself, mm-hmm. I'm the academic director of Muffies. Mm-hmm. Muffies has got five locations in Beijing mm-hmm. and then one location in Wuhan. Mm-hmm. And then I do also help out at a few other kindergartens that are kind of ran by the same sort of big overview. Yeah, company. yeah. So what are some of those kindergartens called? Um, I help out at a school called Mulberry. Mm-hmm. Um, Mulberry is more of a a play-based kind of approach Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to the kind of slightly more academic side that that Mm -hmm. Muffies has got to it Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a it's it's a challenge having kind of a lot of locations but it's Mm -hmm. I'm still enjoying it and I think that's what's kind of kept me here. So we began this conversation a little bit around the fact that you were planning on staying here for a year. Yeah. In the second year, did you think, okay, this will be my second year, then I'm going to go home? Or did you like start committing to a longer term plan? I don't really know when it kind of happened. <laughs> I think the first the first year I was here, I was definitely finding my feet as a teacher, mm-hmm. finding my way around the city, mm-hmm. learning to enjoy the city, mm-hmm. dealing with culture shock and mm-hmm. homesickness and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then I think mm-hmm. maybe two or three years in and definitely two or three years in is when I took a kind of smaller leadership role. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, four or five years in, I took a slightly larger leadership role. Mm -hmm. And then we started to open more branches and the company started to expand. And by then I felt very invested in what we were doing, you know, and I wanted to, I wanted to see it out. I wanted to see how far we could take it. I wanted to see whether the small changes that we were making were working. Mm -hmm. And I was enjoying the the kind of development of my own role, mm-hmm. as well as the development of the of the school. Mm-hmm. And there was really great people around. There still really is great people around me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I loved it. And then I met my husband here. Mm-hmm. And so. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. Could you tell us a little bit about your dance? Because you are now a dance enthusiast here. Mm. How have you made that part of your life here in China? I think whenever you have a whenever you have a busy job, mm-hmm. I think it's important to find out, you know, everyone talks about the kind of work-life balance yeah, yeah. and wellness. Um, and I think no matter how busy you are, you always need to make a certain amount of time to do things that you Mm-hmm. That you feel passionate about mm-hmm. and I still feel passionate about dance mm-hmm. and it definitely isn't the easiest thing to find in Beijing mm-hmm. um contemporary dance isn't very well marketed I guess in Beijing mm-hmm. it's not very popular you know there's tons of dance classes for salsa and street dance yeah and Alex our, our uh, one yes. of our she does yeah, yeah. salsa dance and there's tons of classes for that mm-hmm. and I think contemporary dance is a little bit more of a kind of niche market what is contemporary dance and how is it different because I don't know anything about dance mm-hmm. contemporary dance is kind of founded in ballet mm-hmm. um definitely it found its roots in in kind of classical classical dancing but it definitely it kind of breaks a few of those rules mm-hmm. so whereas in ballet dance everything is very kind of upright and very mm-hmm. formal poised and formal yeah. 
contemporary dance is a little more deconstructed. So you are allowed to bend in ways that... Well, I didn't know where Derrida was going to be on the test today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had a friend on named Andy. He is a movie director, a CGI producer, and he was talking about a class that he is involved with helping evolve here in Beijing, where they do connected dancing, where they hold each other by their wrists and stuff, and they maintain physical... Mm. I thought this is contemporary dance. I don't even know. So could you break down a little more for us laymans who really don't mm -hmm. understand dance? What do you actually actually do in contemporary deconstructed dancing that, what you're talking about with the kind of connection sounds to me like contact improvisation mm, no, that's that what would, he said yeah wow <laughs> um, you know quite is, a bit about dance which is which is basically when you you dance with another partner mm. and it's it's improvised mm. so there are definitely there are set rules to contemporary dance 100 you know there are you know when we think of ballet mm -hmm. there are definitely the positions of the feet you know there are similar things in contemporary dance there are certain spins or mm -hmm. you know falls to the floor that are, you know, associated with contemporary dance. Mm. It's a lot about folding through parts of your body to make everything feel very smooth like when you go to the floor. Yoga in motion. <laughs> kind of like yoga in motion. You know, like when you, if you were to, you know, stand up and fall to the floor, Mm -hmm. It would be I, I very ungraceful, right? Yes, you would yeah, hurt exactly. yourself a lot. <laughs> Contemporary dance kind of teaches sort of a method of kind of folding to the floor. So it feels very seamless as you go to the floor. And wow. so contact improvisation is about kind of two bodies working as, as kind of one. Mm. And so there are definitely rules about certain lifts and certain roles that you would do over another person or under another person. You studied dance, so you know how to do these other kinds of dance like salsa or contact and, improv, no? No, actually my, my undergraduate degree was contemporary dance um so my my formal dance my formal dance training in at university was contemporary dance but prior to that when i was a child um i did kind of ballet modern acro tap um you can tap dance mm. Wow, do you have the shoes for it? I do. I have them in Beijing, but I don't put them on very often because I'm a bit <laughs> concerned about my neighbors. <laughs> occasionally, occasionally I might see a video on, you know, YouTube uh -huh. or something and I'll whip my tap shoes on. <laughs> Certainly China has its own kinds of dancing. Mm. So since you came here 11-ish years ago, maybe a little more, right? 12? Uh, 2011 I got 2011. here. 2011. So about 11 years. Um, has there been a change in the amount of kind of Western options for people to take on? Or has it always been that there's just been a large variety? Second question. What about damas? So do damas, because I see them do salsa sometimes. Do they ever try contemporary dance? I, don't, I mean, I've, never, I've not seen them do any anything that kind of <laughs> collapsing you know to <laughs> collapsing to the ground yeah. you know in the courtyards or anything <laughs> like that but um i think the the options are definitely more now definitely over the last couple of years mm. options for all hobbies has kind of exploded in mm. beijing mm. you know anything that you're that you're interested in i mm. think you can find here mm. oh yeah you're listening to the bridge So you do return home. I remember you mentioning Christmas for mm. family. Um, after living in China for quite a long time, when you do go back home, do you find anything peculiar about your own culture that maybe you didn't find peculiar when you left? Oh, like a reverse question. culture shock. Yeah. Um, I think it feels small. Like it feels very small. Like I'm always surprised when I go, when I go back home, I always rent a car mm. and I'm always surprised how narrow the the roads feel. <laughs> <laughs> because you live in the country, the roads get narrow. And oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Super narrow. Sounds Sometimes, really lovely, actually. Yeah. Countryside a, in UK. It's a beautiful part of the world. My dad's actually a farmer. Oh, yeah. Um, so we 
I what does he farm? Hmm? What does he farm? So when I was when I was a little girl, mm. um, lots of dairy. So mm. it was always the cows and cows, goats. milk, milk cattle. Yeah. Um, and now um, he does a lot of beef, beef farming. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of the the land as well. He outsources a lot of the the kind of crops to outside companies now. Oh, so he um, leases his land to others to use. Kind of for some for some of the land for sure, but he does all of the the selling of the beef cattle by himself. Mm. So he'll take the cows to the market and sell them and that kind of stuff. So He's on horseback with a cowboy hat. Absolutely, yeah. that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I always grew up kind of outdoorsy. You know, I'm definitely, mm. I'm not outdoorsy now, which mm. is surprising. Uh, but as a child, I was outside a lot, hmm. well, petting, I, petting the cows and such. <laughs> so you don't leave the comfort of mm. like the fifth ring inside Beijing anymore, basically. I'm not. I'm not a huge kind of hiking fan. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not. I'm not a big kind of let's go climb this mountain. And, yeah, and that I, that's a huge hobby for a lot of folks here. It is. A huge I, actually, hobby, I love yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people are surprised. And I say, do you want to go on a hike? No, <laughs> but, well, it's not the same as like the countryside. The rolling kind of the rolling countryside. I think it's upward incline. Yes, it's that much more. <laughs> I was coming down a mountain actually last week, about eight days ago, and I was coming down. It looked really vertical, and I was like, this has got to be forty-five degrees. Yeah. And someone who obviously knows a lot more about geometry than me coming up the other way who spoke English was like it's closer to 30 degrees and I was just like oh wow okay <laughs> he really knows his yeah. stuff if he's correcting me coming down the mountain but you know it was also just like you say about Guamau we're on the side of the mountain hiking yeah. there were hundreds of people around hiking up and down all at the same time you know what? I think that's what I that, that's something that else that, that kind of makes me hesitant to take those hikes and go mm. to the park and that kind of stuff that it doesn't feel very yeah. naturey when you're also back to back you have to go way out there you know way, it, way Mon- out in Mungtogo which is way to the west of Beijing. If you keep going, there's some like temples and stuff out there that almost no one ever goes to and you can escape like the crowd, but it, you have to go far. Far. <laughs> yeah, to really go far. So you do go back. So you have family back there. How do they feel about their daughter uh, living in China for 11 years? Mm. Um, my mom's been twice or three times, I think. So I think she, she came here. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I think three times. Wow. Um, so she's got a very deep understanding of how I live here and yeah. what, what I do here and that kind of thing and i speak to my mom daily on mm. wechat wow so we you know send oh, yeah, messages great. back and forth um and i have regular um weekly or every other week video chats with my dad mm. um i think it's helped my dad's technology a lot <laughs> you know his uh his girlfriend bought him a ipad mm. and so mm. we facetime and i speak to him every other week um but i think i think I'm, i think i'm fortunate that i've got very supportive parents mm. and they can tell that i'm happy here mm-hmm. and so while i'm happy here i think they're happy i mean of course, I'm sure they would like to see me more often. But <laughs> yeah, sure. What was your experience of being a tour guide for family when they came to Beijing? Where did you bring them? What did you show them? What did they want to see? And what did you have to show them? So the first the first year my mom came here, hmm. we planned a huge tour. Hmm. And in hindsight, it was it was too much. <laughs> but we went from Beijing to Tianjin, to Xi'an, Chengdu, and Shanghai. Wow. And we did like a huge kind of... That's amazing. Yeah, we did a big tour. And so we, we wanted to do those kind of big cities. Mm-hmm. We wanted to, you know, hit the sort of what what you see in kind of guidebooks, the Terracotta yeah, yeah, yeah. Warriors and the Pandas yeah, and the yeah. Shanghai Skyline. What if it was her only time coming? Exactly, yeah. Because exactly. yeah. at that point, I think she came... Did you go to the wall? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think she came my second year. Mm. And so I think at that point, 
maybe she, she was thinking and i was also thinking this might be the only time she comes to china mm-hmm. let's just let's hit, hit it, hit it, it boom, hard boom, yeah boom, boom, boom. and so we did a lot mm. and so not only was it being a tour guide for my mom but it was only my second year in china as well mm. and that was you know 2000 and would have been like 13 mm. and so still no dd no wechat and so yeah. Hail a taxi like hail this. Hail a taxi like this. It's interesting in America, you, know, you don't hail a taxi like this. Yeah. You hail a taxi and put your hand out. So it's like just the palm kind of, of the hand. The... Okay, that's really interesting. I mm. think after a few more years, she came back because she came three times. Yeah. So mm. after you had become a seasoned Beijinger, yep. what other kinds of things, maybe more specific to your experience of Beijing, did you show relatives? I think the the second time that she came back. Um, and especially when, when my husband, my husband's mom came here as well, oh, yeah. just a few years Were they ago. Together? Was this for no, your no, wedding? No, no, no. Um, but when, when she came back a second time and when my partner's mom came, we definitely did more of the kind of local things, mm-hmm. places that we really enjoy mm-hmm. as opposed to kind of big tourist attractions. Well, for our fans who live outside of China, what mm. were some of those really cool places that you showed them? Just kind of cool, you know, little restaurants and coffee shops mm. and parts of the hotel that you might not necessarily see in a guidebook. Yeah. Kind of just interesting things that we... You want to plug any one of these places? I mean, if you're a, if you're a huge kind of coffee fan any of kind of the small sort of coffee shops that are in that are near the Lama Temple mm. um, along that road. They're absolutely yeah. fabulous, like really, really great, like kind of small kind of little cafes. Strange for me, when I go to the Lama Temple, I like to go to the Temple of Confucius, which is yes. about 10 or 15 minute yep. walk from there. And there's a room adjacent to it where the emperor used to study. It's oh, like wow. his, it's a vaulted ceiling. It's really lovely. Yeah. So I think a lot less people go to yeah. this particular You don't thing. really see it in sort of guidebooks, but it might be something that you only find if you kind of live here oh, yeah. you're listening to the bridge why dancing what is it about dancing so there's different kinds of learners which mm. actually is associated with your school which yeah. teaches a variety of intelligences and kinesthetic is one of those so is it that you're just really a moving kind of person or what is it about contemporary dance that draws you to that all for the jazz hands right <laughs> um, i i mean is I've, that I've step always up one i've no idea <laughs> i've uh, I've, al- I've always liked dance and movement you know right since being being small i've always been enrolled in mm. in dance class or gymnastics mm. and i think whenever you find something that you that you enjoy mm-hmm. and that you you know are reasonably good at like, yeah. it makes you want to keep to oh, keep, so you, your keep success you're it. like hey i'm good at this Let's yeah try. like maybe i should take more classes than this. well what other hobbies do you mm. have here in beijing that maybe i don't know about or mm. that you would like to share with our listeners um i'm a i'm a big gardener right now i oh, think there's that's a right yeah what is you and you mentioned this what is urban gardening <laughs> Urban gardening. So essentially it's just, it's growing plants in a big city. Mm. You know, you think of gardening being like in England, the English countryside Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. a beautiful rose garden and those kind of things. And Mm -hmm. you don't really associate growing plants or flowers or vegetables or fruits in a big city. In a big city like Beijing, Mm. how is it that you have a garden? So actually now, last year, we we managed to find a first floor apartment that had Uh, a garden. Is this like a hotel? No, in a... It's like a tower. Yeah. But you're just on the first floor. On the, on the ground floor wow. with a garden. Yeah, there are there are several communities like that in Beijing. You just wow. kind of have to... Is it more expensive than the other floors? Um, actually, you know, outdoor spaces, they're not very, very popular with with kind of, you know, it's, it's hot. 
hot in the summer and it's cold. And so I think oh. a lot of them, when we were on our ground floor apartment, the two apartments either side of us, they barely used their outdoor space. Mm. You know, we went the whole nine yards. We did, mm. you know, painted the fence and outdoor patio furniture. Yeah, and I've I'm seen sure the pictures. It looks really nice. Yeah. So the growing, is it because you want to eat your own food? Is this for environmentalism? Is there a bit of both? I mean, it's, it's definitely more hobby than than mm. for for kind of sustainability. Not trying to save the world. No, I mean <laughs> one cabbage at a time. One, one tomato <laughs> at a time. I mean, definitely for for me, I think it's more about the process of it. Mm. It's about putting something in the ground and watching it turn into a plant, mm. or watching it fail. You know, and then you know what went wrong. Can I do it again better next time? You know, I mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. I like the process of of taking care of something, and I think that probably comes from my dad. Right, mm. he's a farmer, so he's kind of got that growing energy that kind of filtered into me. I think you know, I I love gardening at my parents' house. Mm. My first move wasn't to China. It was to South Korea. And they put me on their first floor. It wasn't, I didn't have an outside to go gardening in. But these really fast red centipedes that are like as thick as your thumb, but like this long, got into my home on more than one occasion. And when they move on the wall, they're like fast. And I was like, I don't know. Are these deadly? I didn't know. I still don't know. I didn't look it up because was, I'm too scared. Touch it and see. I'm, <laughs> I'm too scared to look. So I was more worried about uh, peace ever, Yeah. So I insisted because that apartment in South Korea was mm. provided by my employer. Yeah. I was like, okay, the lease is ending. Move me away oh, from the I ground. I want to be away from the bugs. Uh, yeah, yeah. Please. Uh, so they moved me like sixth floor, ninth floor. I can't remember. But ever since then, I've been yeah. really scared to be close to the first floor because I don't mm. want some really dangerous yeah. insect coming in. So actually, we, we've we moved since. So we're not on the ground mm. floor anymore. We're five floors up and we've got mm. a terrace instead. Oh. Um, so we have a bigger space and now. And you're still growing. And still growing. So rather than growing, I mean, we never grew directly in the in the ground. We always grew in containers. Mm. Um, and so now we've got a bigger space. We've got more space for containers, actually. Mm. Um, obviously not now because it's it's winter. But over mm. the mm. over the summer season, we were growing a lot, a lot, a lot of space for containers. I have a silly question from mm. totally ignorant perspective. Potatoes they grow underground. Can do yeah. some things grow in the winter? Yeah, there's loads of winter vegetables, things like kale, certain types of lettuces. Um, you can keep potatoes in the ground for over the winter. Hmm. And now's a really good time to get your kind of bulbs in the ground for spring wow. next year. But even if people haven't got a an outdoor space, urban gardening's more about propagating inside as well. Mm -hmm. You know, especially in Beijing where a lot of people have got those kind of balcony areas. Yeah. Um, they get tons of heat hmm. um, where people would normally dry their so inside, clothes outside. in Beijing. Um, Do you get the, I get these tiny little gnats that you can barely see that buzz around when I have a house plant. Oh, Do okay. you get more of those when you grow a lot of stuff inside? I, I don't grow any any food plants oh, inside. Oh. I have a lot of house plants. Oh, yeah. Um, but the best kind of advice for to sort of house plants is, and this is going to sound really strange, but showering your house plants. So if you've got a, a house plant, yeah. take it out of the pot. You should have it in one of those like plastic kind of growing pots with holes at the bottom. Yeah. Put it in your shower. Yeah. Shower it down, leaves and all, just uh -huh. drown it essentially. Turn off your shower, let it drain in the shower. With cold water. Yeah. Well, I mean, not freezing cold water, yeah. it's just, you know, tepid water. Mm -hmm. And then do that maybe once a week in the summer, once every two weeks in the winter, cleans off all the dust off the leaves, any little kind of pests or bugs that you might have on your on your houseplants that'll get rid of all of those. And then you can I'm really confused. Um, doesn't that wash out like nutrients in the soil? No, I mean, it's, it's the equivalent of it, of it being outside and getting rained on. Oh, right? okay. I, I see. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. You're not kind of showering it for 25 minutes. You're just briefly, briefly, and then putting it back in. But you want to much better to soak your plants through less frequently than mm -hmm. to water them a little bit more frequently mm -hmm. in most cases for plants. Oh, yeah.
You're listening to The Bridge. You have a cat? Two now. Two cats. And you are involved in helping save animals that need rescuing. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, definitely not me personally involved with the actual rescuing. Mm -hmm. uh, But Nigel and I, my husband and I, Mm -hmm. uh, we do donate regularly to Furry Tales, which is a... Furry Tales. Furry Tales, yeah. And it's actually ran by, by two expats women um so and if we have wechat we want to find it we just look furry, furry tales. tales yeah furry tales um and they do just the most spectacular job but what do they do um they rescue animals from the streets so if mm. there are strays around and then they also help out with a, a shelter mm. um at a big animal shelter I think so the that's guy's what they need is, the money for yeah keeping, keeping, the, animals keeping the animals in the shelter while they're looking for foster care, foster care. or adoptions and mm. so they do but these these two girls they just do the most fantastic job mm. helping in the community and i think mm. that's kind of key to to living in a new place that you mm-hmm. want to be involved in the community yeah. right and they and they do that so wonderfully is that where you got your second cat yeah brenda so, that's my mom's name oh really so <laughs> when you adopted my mom like yep. she was saved from the street she was saved from tingen actually um wow. so she was a um she's a she's one of those kind of flat-faced yeah, yeah, exotic yeah, yeah. short hairs and so when she was born she was riddled with health problems mm. and so rather than the breeder putting the money in to save her they just out on the street and so she was found by a lady in tingen you know a couple of weeks old lice and runny eyes and mm. you know like in a really really bad way and so the the lady in tingen nursed her back to you know health mm-hmm. and then she was shipped to beijing where furry tails got her mm-hmm. and then another lady fostered her and until she was, I think we got her when she was about nine or 10 months old. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we got her, she was 90% healthy. Like she mm. was almost, you know, perfect. And now she's about 18 months old and she's thriving. Great. You know? That's a great story. Yeah. Wow. So Furry Tales exists in just Beijing or other communities as well? This is very local. These two as, ladies. Uh, yeah. As far as I know, just Beijing. But the two the two women, they're very well connected. Mm. You know, when, mm. um, you know, we had that exchange when you were moving your yeah. your cats here yeah. and about, you know, and they've got a, a kind of WeChat group. They're always going to know someone in another city. Yeah. I needed to you move know? my cat because we were at the line where we needed to move to Beijing. Mm. And the previous time we'd moved, we did the long paperwork thing. It takes yeah. like a month to get all the paperwork and shots to fly her. To fly, yeah. But we were like, we don't have time this time. We need to get her to like Beijing. A company. Exactly. And they were able to mm. transport her in a car to Beijing. It took a couple of days, but yeah. it's it, she's she, with us. She she's happy. She's safe. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. And one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on Mm. is because a lot of our listeners are parents in China who are trying to raise their children, have many questions. Mm -hmm. And part of that is to do with learning English, but also just learning in general. So could you tell us a little bit about if a child is struggling to learn something new, Mm. we'll just pretend it's English for now. Like what are some of the things that they can do to help their child learn more successfully? I know it's a very general question. We can narrow in later. Yeah. I think you've got to find what your child enjoys. Mm. You know, I think if you, if you're a parent and you're trying to, you know, help your kid with reading, for Mm -hmm. example, Mm -hmm. and you're presenting them with book after book after book with topics that the mm. child isn't isn't really interested in you know yeah. they're never going to want to pick up that book every day and read it mm. and I always give the advice to parents at, at Muffy's to take your child to a bookstore mm-hmm. you know have them pick out books that they really like mm-hmm. and if your child wants 10 Teenage books Mutant, yeah Turtles. if they want 10 books on turtles buy 10 books on turtles <laughs> you know like if they want just 
if they love dinosaurs, buy them just dinosaur books mm, yeah. and get them to fall in love with reading first. And then you can kind of introduce different genres and different books and you can kind of focus in on teaching the skills of reading when mm. they're enjoying it. You know, I think that's the key that we want. We want kids to love education. We don't want them to see it as a, a kind of chore. Mm. One of the questions that mm. educators get is they want their children to self-direct a little bit, mm -hmm. to have a little more autonomy. How can parents, while still wanting to help be a helicopter parent with their child doing their homework and things, mm. how can they also encourage their child to study a little more independently? I think you've got to find a you've got to find a balance with your children, right? Mm. Like I think if you're uh, like we talked about earlier with hobbies and working really hard, but having an outlet, I think your children have got to have the same kind of balance. Mm. That having a you know a schedule for your children is really important, but I think you've got to make sure that there's a a balance, right? That you've got to make sure that there is time for studying and then also time for recreation and time for play. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that your children know that, mm -hmm. that if you're asking them, hey, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, those are studying days, Tuesday, Thursday, those are your own free time. Mm -hmm. Saturdays, you take class, Sundays is your time. Mm -hmm. You know, and as your child gets older, you might adjust that balance of study days versus play days. Mm -hmm. But I think you need to, you need to, to let, let the child know that they have time to study and time to play so mm -hmm. that when mm -hmm. it is that studying day, they might feel a little bit more committed to that studying day because they can see the light at the end of the of the tunnel. I have another question. You know, I've heard different answers about this. So I'd be curious to hear your perspective because you are a long-term educator mm. with a, who is highly qualified. A lot of parents have the idea that there's a specific age that is suitable for learning a foreign language, specifically mm. English here in China. So is that true? What would you say is a good time to get your child into learning a foreign language? I mean, as early as possible. Mm. You know, I think for, I mean, being bilingual, you know, happens very often when you've got two parents that speak different mm. languages because mm. you're hearing it right from birth. Yeah. And I think any time that if you would like your child to be bilingual as early as possible, mm -hmm. you know, early and often, they, they there's a lot of research that talks about the first five, you know, the first five years mm. of, of a child's mm. life is the kind of most important time. Mm. And you, you know, you're never going to get that five years back so that if you mm. can find a place that's really going to support a wide range of needs, you know, mm. and not, not just language acquisition, but yeah. also being independent and fostering a love of, of, of nature and books and physical mm. education, you know, th those first five are, are the most important. So putting your child into a system where if you want bilingual education, great as early as possible, but not forgetting about the kind of the wider range of skills is also is also important. I want to ask you about a story because mm -hmm. you have a lot of academic background, but you also have a lot of experience. And I think both can be helpful in this sort of field or any field. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular moment or a, a particular student that's or even a whole class that stands out to you where you really clicked about something regarding how children learn? Uh, I, re I remember one of my very favorite teaching moments. Um, I had a had a student called Joyce. This was years ago. Mm. So maybe in my first or second year of China. So she'd be a teenager now. <laughs> mm. And so I remember she was really, really interested in space. Yeah. Anything, planets, moons, mm. rockets, astronauts, anything mm. space related. Um, and we were a couple of months away from graduating. And so she was reading pretty well. You know, she was able to to pick up books and read that well. Mm -hmm. And there was a news article that I'd read that morning before coming to school about, you know, one of those kind of scientists discover new planet or mm. scientists discover new moon, or I forget what it was. Mm -hmm. And so I just screenshotted the headline 
And then that morning when I went into school, I just gave her my phone. Yeah. And that moment where she was reading it and then looked at me and then read it and then looked at me. <laughs> and she, really? Really? And that was magical for me mm. that, you know, she was a child that came in not knowing how to read, mm. found something that she really found enthusiastic. And then I transferred the gift of actually being able to read and understand and process what she was <laughs> reading and then to give her the, the enjoyment of discovering something. That's magical for me. Is that going back to the same kind of story about bringing them to the bookstore? Mm. So what the, the things that they find interesting yeah. are going to be the things that are best utilized yeah. to teach them how to read, how to learn, yeah. how to listen. And parents can definitely utilize that. We we talk a lot in education about the kind of method of when and then. Hmm. You know, when you finish this page of homework, then I'll read you a dinosaur book. Mm -hmm. You know? <laughs> or when you've done your homework, then you can oh, get your favorite. So reward oriented. Yeah, reward oriented. But they know that the positive thing is coming after. Mm. You know, the when and then when you've done this, then this can happen. They can watch that show Hulu or yeah, or whatever, or you know, or, or whatever, it, or whatever it might be. I have a friend of the show. I don't want to embarrass her, but her one of her sons, her mm -hmm. second son, is a bit distracted oftentimes, mm -hmm. and she's wondering how to approach helping him focus. Could you give us some tips? I think it's timing is a big thing. Mm -hmm. I think, and I, I hear this a lot from parents that you know my my, my child won't sit down and, and and finish the task, yeah. or they won't they won't do their their homework task. And the first question we always kind of talk about is, well, how long are they they expected to do that activity yeah, for. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I get it sometimes with parents that ask me about kind of classes, like piano class. Mm -hmm. you know, my, my child doesn't want to play the piano. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, how long are you having the classes for? Well, it's five days a week for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like four. <laughs> well, and that's a long, that's a lot of time, right? Yeah, that's, a, yeah. you know, even for adults, mm -hmm. sitting for mm -hmm. an hour and doing any one task is going to be a lot. Yeah. And so I think for, for children, small chunks mm -hmm. is often more manageable. And again, just like with the schedule, giving your child the schedule letting them know that this is what's happening on these days mm -hmm. and the same when you set them down to do homework an egg timer your phone letting them know that you've got 10 minutes mm. it's 10 minutes of studying when the 10 minutes is up you can go do something else mm. when the timer goes off then you can do something else but i'm also going to set a timer for the playtime. Yeah, and yeah. when you finish playing then you're going to come back and do 10 minutes more mm. and so you can kind of structure it in a way that kind of suits their attention span would you be able to adjust that after six months so that there's well, like a few more minutes yeah maybe 13 minutes slightly... and 14 minutes and 15 yeah, yeah of course as yeah. their concentration maybe it maybe increases <clears> but <throat> i think you want to you don't want to set children up for failure you want to set them up for success mm -hmm. and so if we're expecting a child to sit for an hour we've set them up for failure mm -hmm. because that's not yeah, it's not see, realistic and then they're you know? like feeling bad because they didn't meet mom or dad's expectations, expectations. we want to you know if we expect a six-year-old for six to sit for five minutes that's more than doable right <laughs> so oh yeah You're listening to The Bridge. So could you tell us a little bit about how is education evolving here in China? Mm -hmm. I mean, what was it called? The double reduction policy yeah. came into play last year or the year before? Yeah, a couple of years ago. And now, so right? how has uh, teaching, especially for, as it relates to foreigners, mm -hmm. evolving now? Anytime that you have a very oversaturated market, and that's definitely what ed education was mm -hmm. in Beijing. You know, mm -hmm. you couldn't you couldn't really yeah. walk into any mall. There's English. English everywhere, ESL, right? Apples, yeah, yeah like, everywhere. Coffee shop, training school, coffee shop, yeah. training school, right? Yeah. And I think 
spending any time with a very oversaturated market, mm. the quality is going to vary drastically. Yeah. So I think a lot of people kind of opened schools or opened training centers, hired a expat, yeah. gave them a textbook. And oh, you, like, have a, you have a degree in photography? You You're going to yeah. make a great <laughs> English, great English teacher. teacher. <laughs> no training, no professional development yeah. along the way. And they just, they put this, you know, expat in the classroom that yeah. might have done a, you know, a three hour course online to get a TEFL <laughs> yeah, and then exactly. and hope it works. Yeah. And that's, another, you know, we talked about the first five, right? Like the mm -hmm. first five mm -hmm. years of education, you really can't, you don't have any room to make mistakes yeah. with right. a child's education. And so I, I agree with the kind of the big shake up, you mm -hmm. know, I think there definitely needed to be some reform. There mm -hmm. needed to be more regulations on the types of people that were teaching mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. the types of schools that were allowed to teach and the materials that they were teaching. Um, I think it's got a lot of people worried because for a lot of parents, those training centers, mm -hmm. you know, they public education system maybe mm -hmm. doesn't have as much English as they wanted. Mm -hmm. So they wanted the English in the evenings and the English at the weekends. Mm -hmm. And so I think for some parents, they're kind of feeling from, from my experience of talking to the parents at Muffy's, mm -hmm. you know, some of them are a little bit anxious about what they will do when they leave yeah. the kindergarten. Where can they get that extra English from? Like, mm -hmm. where are they going to get that kind of environment from? Mm -hmm. But I, I like the fact that they are pivoting more towards, you know, dance and arts and mm -hmm. music mm -hmm. and those mm -hmm. kind of things. And I hope that in the next sort of few years, maybe they will reintroduce more of the training center style back, mm -hmm. but maybe in a more controlled fashion. And there will yeah. be a little bit more regulation to it. The types of people that are teaching, the types of people that are, you know, opening schools that have academic backgrounds or education yeah. backgrounds. And I, I see that now with interviewing people that there are teachers out here that don't have experience or even passion or drive to teach. Mm. You know, they are just... Oh, I want to spend time in China. Yeah. Oh, I found that. It was a teaching job. I'll come over for that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's disheartening for me. You know, I, we could do an entire another podcast on terrible interviews in China. <laughs> you know? Well, on... could you tell us, please don't use anyone's name. Yeah. You could not even where they're from. Of course. So we, they, no one will have any idea. Yep. Could you tell us one or two very peculiar interview stories? Sure. So I'll tell you one kind of general one that comes up a lot. Okay. Um, that's that's one of that. my yeah. one of my favorite questions to ask and it's a question I always ask in the interview we talk about story time you know we talk mm -hmm. about reading and having kids really love books and be passionate and story time is a kindergarten tradition yeah, right yeah. kids on the floor big picture book mm -hmm. reading aloud and so anyone that interviews for a kindergarten I always ask them what's your favorite children's book mm -hmm. there is an alarming amount of kindergarten pe educators or or that are interviewing to be kindergarten educators that can't name a single children's book that's wow. terrifying that is actually kind of scary yeah I couldn't even say the name Dr. Seuss. Anything. No, nothing. Hungry Caterpillar, like nothing. Wow. And that's terrifying to they me. They don't remember their own no. education. No. I'm surprised because I could yeah. probably, in addition to the books that I love, yep. I could just name random stories. That, yep. Wow, that's bizarre. Yeah. And then the other the other kind of thing that happens from time to time, which is heartbreaking for me, is, is people that are teaching currently, mm. that are looking for a new job. Again, they might be people that aren't really invested in teaching. Mm -hmm. And a story that happened a few weeks ago, and it mm -hmm. made me quite angry you know was there was a we we very often liaise with with agencies mm. so teachers will find an agency the yeah, agency yeah. will communicate with us and because i worked you with came you an and i came through an agent and yeah he, he was very I kind and respectful adore your agent actually yeah, yeah. he is one of I the nicest guys yeah he's wonderful so we were trying to set up an interview with you know this said individual mm. and the agent was kind of liaising back and forth so i never spoke to the, the candidate individually yeah but basically he was asking the agent you know what will the salary be mm -hmm. before or anything else before about the the environment the school the curriculum the people nothing mm. and so the agent was 
trying to be, you know, well, you know, it's a range. It depends on your experience and your interview and your qualifications, you know, mm -hmm. and if they're satisfied with you, you know, they'll make you an offer. Mm -hmm. And his reply back and the agent screenshotted it and sent it to us was, I'm white and native. Why wouldn't they be satisfied? Wow. I was livid. Yeah. You know, as, as, that's you a no hire. Automatic. Automatic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I can, I can introduce the teacher to children's books. You know, if yeah. they answer all the other questions correctly, I might forgive the can't name a children's book, mm. but that level of entitlement, mm. <laughs> you're going to be someone's teacher. Yeah. You know, you shouldn't be teaching anybody. Yeah. You know, like that's a, and, and it happens more, more than you'd, more than you think. Mm. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about people coming to China now? Mm. How can they get a job here in China? So they're like, okay, I'm in the UK. I'm in the United States. I'm in Australia, wherever mm. I want to come to China and, you know, do what Christy does, or at least, you know, mm -hmm. be a teacher. What is the process like and how do they do that? Actually, I think now more than ever, mm -hmm. I think people have got to be very, very cautious when finding a job. Mm -hmm. um, there is obviously a, a huge huge lack of, of teachers right now. The yeah. expat population is on the decline mm -hmm. in China. And mm -hmm. I do think it'll swing back around again. Mm -hmm. I do think as, you know, restrictions ease in China, it'll be easier for people to come. Mm -hmm. Maybe expats that left will come back. Mm -hmm. But now, especially for me, and I, I hear this a lot, I do all of the interviews for Muffies. So I interview mm -hmm. all our potential candidates and whether it's people that are in Beijing mm -hmm. That, or in different parts of, of China that have found themselves in very risky and very dangerous situations where they've expected to find one kind of job and then it's really not gone that way for them. Mm -hmm. And I think whenever you're you're overseas, mm -hmm. make sure that you are applying direct with the school mm -hmm. and try and avoid the kind of agent middleman if you yeah. can. We have jobs in these 20 cities. <laughs> exactly. That person yeah. may not because, have your best interest in heart. Yeah. And you know, I think there's, there's obviously a, there's a lot of schools recruiting yeah. and there's a very a smaller number of people that need those jobs. Mm. And so I think for a lot of employers, they are kind of throwing around huge salaries mm -hmm. and great packages. But maybe when you get into that position, it isn't exactly what you mm -hmm. anticip anticipated it being. Yeah. I'm hoping that it'll kind of swing back round again and things will kind of even out with more expats coming in mm -hmm. and the kind of job market will kind of settle itself down. But as someone who's recruiting at the minute, it's 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 tough with lots of competition mm. and not so many people coming in, but I would just advise anybody just to do your research, make yeah. sure that your new employer allows you to speak directly with current employees, yeah. that you've seen videos from the actual school with actual employees, you know, ask for a video tour. Yeah. See the facilities, <laughs> make sure that you've spoken to somebody that works, not just one person, but multiple people. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. I want to know more about your experience in China a little bit before we go. Mm -hmm. So could you tell me some of the things or some of the cities experiences that you enjoyed about living in China? I mean, the, the big kind of life changing thing that happened to me mm -hmm. in China was I got married last yeah. year in China. Did you have your wedding here? It did. And family from both of you? No. 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 So how did that work? We, we'd, we'd wanted a big wedding. Um, my, my partner, Nigel, he's from the States. Mm -hmm. um, I'm obviously from England. So we were planning pre-pandemic, so pre-2020. Yeah. We were planning on having a big wedding, maybe in China, maybe overseas somewhere. Or maybe we both. Bring, or maybe both, bring everybody over. Yeah. And obviously when the pandemic happened, mm. we, couldn't, we couldn't do that. And we were kind of getting anxious during the pandemic that if it was to get worse and we would have to go back to our, you know, different countries. Different that, countries. 
I mean, you know, if if it was to get worse, you could probably you can go to the United States without a visa. You just show up, right? Yeah, but you can't stay there and live and work, right? Maybe you could get there and then get there, yeah. If you wanted, if you wanted to. Back then, in in 2020, um, the British Embassy and the American Embassy weren't marrying two expats. So if you were a, a a foreign passport holder and a Chinese passport holder, you could get married. Yeah. But two foreign passport holders couldn't get married. I'm confused. Right. So then in 2021, so last year, yeah. um, the British embassy, they announced, okay, two foreigners can get married. Mm. And so we immediately put our names down on the waiting list and mm. we were told it would be March of this year. Yeah. Um, and then we put our wait- names on the waiting list in the October and then we got a phone call and they were like, December 7th. And so... They decided your date. Yeah. Okay. You get no choice in it. They were like, December Seven. Like sevens. Just seven. It's Pearl Harbor Day. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so it's Goodness not, ex- you know, it's a bit of a. Well, maybe interesting... you're you're, re- you're making it better now. Yeah. By putting something better. There was ceremony. Yeah. So it's white dress, the... red dress. Uh, a, a kind of creamy ivory kind of color. Huh. Um. You know what though? It was the first time in eleven years I'd ever dealt with the with the British Embassy with, mm-hmm. the, with the consulate, and it was the easiest thing I've ever done in China. R- could you tell us more about? Yeah, that? I expected it to be this huge kind of paperwork monstrosity. To get yeah. married and it really wasn't it was Sign just <laughs> essentially yeah it was a phone call to the to the consulate put the name on the waiting list fill in a form my husband he got his affidavit from the usa yeah, yeah. i remember doing embassy. that we had three witnesses we went to the consulate and basically it's a room not dissimilar to this mm. there's a big picture of the you know god rest us all the queen in the mm. background yeah. um one table a few chairs and you basically the she wasn't the ambassador i forget who married yeah. us but a person from the british embassy married us mm-hmm. signed the paperwork but it was so easy, like mm. just a few forms online, pay the money, wasn't even expensive. Mm. And then boom, wedding certificate. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. And I think we might do a big wedding later, but well, definitely. I'd love for, to come. Yeah. For, <laughs> for right now, I think. Well, if you do again. a big ceremony, mm. would you do like a British style or would you incorporate I do a Chinese fusion, elements? Yeah. yeah. I want to do the fusion. I want to change the dress like five times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I was curious about. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. It was lovely to see you again. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you.